0: If you're joining us for the first time, let me just say welcome, Uh, really excited that you're here with us. If you've been with us through this journey in the epistle of James, you'll be very familiar with the reality that what we're capturing, or I think what James is capturing for us, is that you and I are chronically and terminally aware of our lack. We know that for the life that we live and the things that surround us, we don't necessarily have all of the competencies and capabilities to do and deal with everything perfectly that's before us. And so what's end up getting married together in our study through the book of James is the awareness of our lack and the real strengthening reality of the gospel that gives us all that we need so that in the gospel and in intimacy with jesus christ we lack nothing and we are firmly committed to that reality that the sense in which our intimacy with jesus christ his supernatural strength and power, his ability to do what needs to be done inside of our hearts to bring us aware of the areas that he's changing, and at the same time, be the source of which that change occurs, becomes critical for us to realize that what's so foundational for us as followers of Christ is that the mission of Jesus is to seek and save the lost, to rescue sin-sick sinners, and in so doing, those who have been saved and rescued are infinitely and abundantly aware that there is a daily need of rescue because the flesh is alive and well inside of us. We know that, we're aware of that reality. James did, uh, James, (laughs) Jim did a great job preaching on James last week, and again, talking about the importance of understanding what it means to be married with this idea of living out our faith and how, how the gospel, how intimacy with Jesus Christ, awareness of our sin, the sufficiency of Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection has united us with him in such a way that as we're connected with Jesus Christ, Christ is always changing us and propelling us to be about that which bears supernatural fruit. So again, it's not us doing things for God. What we're saying and what James said um, in in the epistle last week is just so essential is that God is always bearing fruit as we are united with him. So the spiritual fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control against such things there is no law, as Paul tells us in Galatians. What he's saying is that there is no limit to the fruit bearing the Holy Spirit can do on our lives as we're connected with him. So in the process of those things, God's always doing change. James three is going to take us on this journey where I think what is so critical is he unites all that he's been talking about to get us to this understanding that basically what James wants to do is start with the primary place. God is going to implement change. And when I say primary place, I mean primary place. What he's saying in this chapter is essential because it actually has an impact on every other area in which the Lord is implementing change. And he's saying, here's where we're going to start. Your tongue. My tongue. The things that we say are the areas in which we begin to realize that it has an impact on charting the course of how we understand foundationally who God is and who the people around us are. I honestly think that what James is doing is capturing the picture that Solomon gives us in Proverbs 18:21. Here's what he says. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. Here's the King Solomon, the one that is declared at his time the most wise, is communicating to us that the substance of our speech composes both death and life. Let me contend with you this morning, or at least suggest with you, that every single one of us sitting here this morning, myself included, even though I'm not sitting down, gives us this recognition that every one of us has been shaped by the words spoken to us spoken about us and spoken over us many of us have grown up and we grew up in a fairly loving home where we had parents who spoke life and encouragement they offered corrective action, and communication, all from the basis of love, and help shape our understanding of values, ethics, and morals. Maybe some of us had that coach who just told us things about ourselves and drove us to a place to be a better version of ourselves, and we look back on those areas and think about places where where we were just encouraged to strive harder and push further, and do things that we didn't think that we could do because we had somebody in our corner telling us things about ourselves that we didn't initially believe many of us have been shaped in really good ways by words spoken to us about us and over us but my guess is those aren't ones that we always chronically remember what tends to come to the surface are the other ones those words that have been spoken to you and to me or maybe even that we've spoken that carry a tone of harshness they've dismantled and devalued the view of ourselves many of us have found ourselves in this place where decades we've dealt with wounds of that which people that we loved or we thought loved us have said things about us that have absolutely destroyed our own version or image of ourselves the harshness and the wounding the abusiveness of a spouse and the words spoken and anger and frustration have dismantled how a person feels about themselves or a parent to a child or someone who is a friend. Every single one of us have been wounded by words. Every single one of us have been hurt in ways where we just hope that if we push it under the rug, maybe, just maybe, it will go away. James 3 is going to address it. And not just in the sense that, yes, we have been hurt by words, but let me also suggest to you this morning that your words have hurt as well, as mine have. I can have the fleshly gift of sarcasm. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily go over all that well, and it's not a spiritual gift. But I realize that even in the context of my own heart, that there are words and things that I've said that have come across harshly. In fits of anger, frustration, or insecurity, I've said things that have hurt people. And I've been hurt by things that have been said over me. Proverbs 18:21, I think is the basis for James moving us towards an understanding of what this looks like. If what Solomon says is true, that life and death are in the power of the tongue, how does the gospel apply to the words we speak? is it really that critical that's the question my suggestion to you this morning is that words shape words create words define words scar words have power and whoever came up with that ridiculous nursery rhyme that sticks and stones can break my bones but words never hurt me is lost or has never been hurt the way that you and i have been hurt by words it's just absolute, and I know we tell our kids, don't worry about what other people say, but we live in a digital age where it's not necessarily just the words of our mouth, but what ends up happening, it's the posts on Facebook, it's the tweets on Twitter, it's the TikToks, it's all of those things where things are being said and people are getting a version of how they're being viewed and the dismantling, discouraging, destructive, scorching nature of words has dismantled so many in the younger generation as to their value. This is a heavy topic. It's a serious reality that we have to address and we want to address it biblically. We don't want to just come and tell one another, hey stop it. Stop telling each other these things. We want the reality of how the gospel applies to the words we say to be the source and the implement of change. We suggest to you this morning that James gives us six illustrations in three categories as to how important and primary allowing the truth of God's word to get control of our tongue is. He says it's like a bit in a horse's mouth, it's like a rudder on a ship, it's like a spark that starts a fire, it's like a poisonous reptile that brings death, it's like a fountain it's like a fig tree or a grapevine i think what he's doing is allowing and accessing the entry point of how our words matter because what i think he's ultimately getting at is the words we say reflect our hearts let me read James chapter 3, and we're going to go through the whole chapter, but I want to read the first 12 verses for us this morning because I think it sets the primary cadence and rhythm of how we deal with the reality of the fact that words have wounded us and that we've used words that have wounded others. There's a taking and an inventory, if you will, of the things that are going on inside of our hearts. And I will tell you this, let me lay my cards on the table. I don't think the outcome of this message is going to be just bite your tongue. I don't think that's what he's saying. Because what we don't say doesn't mean that our heart doesn't actually believe the things that we're not saying. Because inside there's a churning and a frustration and an anger and a poisonous reality that exists is if we don't allow the truth of God's word to rest over how we think and what we say. So he enters into this conversation through the context of teaching. And I think he's tying it to the conversation that he's talking to all of these individuals that have been spread out because of persecution. And he's saying, what I want you to do is to resist the impulse to teach. Because often what you would think is that you're Intimately connected with Christ or as you're growing somehow in some way you get this version That there's a lack of awareness of how deeply you're needing rescue and the sin that infest your life And so you think of an opportunity and you just jump in he said let me let me ask you to exercise caution He says because those who teach are going to be scrutinized more for the things they say why? Because words shape words define one uh, person that was teaching on this text says, words create worlds. And I think she's right. There is a sense in which what has been fashioned in our life has been fashioned by the words that have been spoken over us. And so he's saying there needs to be prudence and caution before somehow, in some way, it's just worth standing up and teaching and vomiting all the things that we think we know. James chapter three. Not many of you, James says, should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Verse two, for we all stumble in many ways, and any, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is the perfect man, meaning mature, able also to bridle his whole body. Just a little bit of a tangent here, He's saying, I think James is riveted on this reality, that if there's any one of us that struggles with any sin that we can imagine, any habit, any problem, any festering anger, anything that exists inside, that we would say is not necessarily of God. He's saying the place to start in dealing with addiction, habits, behaviors, challenges, or sinful thoughts and desires is to start with the tongue because the words that you say and how we speak about the things that are around us actually direct the course of our own lives. We nourish sin in our lives by the words that we speak and all of us do it. All of us would say to one, the, the things that have happened to me, the life that I've lived, the challenges that I've faced have set me up and so there's just some things where I'm just okay with not being okay, <laughs> and it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there because Jesus is always moving, him to, moving us to himself. Anyway, if you put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we, we guide their whole body as well. Our life is directed by words. Look at the ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire! And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Verse eight, but no human being can tame the tongue. We need something supernatural to deal with our primary problem. Why? Because James tells us what the tongue is. Look at this, and if, if you ever mark in your Bible or you just highlight or whatever, circle the last part of verse eight. The tongue, it is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God, From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does the spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I'd like to suggest this morning as we walk through these realities that the six illustrations that we give can be compartmentalized, if you will, into three categories and the three categories are that words shape, they direct where we go. And a lot of times, if not often a tongue or words that are redeemed by the truth of the word itself and the reality of God's word direct us against contrary forces that are putting us against or are pushing against us in our own walks with the Lord that part of what we want to do is realize that if it's true in proverbs 18 21 that life and death enter power of the tongue then obviously we would say well i want life right i mean i want to be a source of life but in the process of those things what we realize is that the word of god itself the word made flesh is that which directs the words that you and i speak the gospel becomes the rhythm of a tongue that is redeemed and used by God to communicate the power of the truth of who Christ is. Words matter. Words shape. Words define. Words create worlds. So I think what he's getting at in the first section of James chapter 3 is that the mouth speaks what the heart believes. See, it, it doesn't just come from us saying words. The words we say are actually generated from things that are going on inside. Jackie Hill Perry says it this way. Words say what the heart hides. Uh Ah, That's a little bit too surgical. If I really want to think on it, like that's a tactical arrow into my heart. Because I can realize that I can bite my tongue, and I can still have a view of people that is, doesn't view them as image bearers of God. I can, I can cast into uh dismantling or devaluing individuals that have been valued and created by the god of the universe who saw fit psalm 139 that they've been placed and god knew them before they were in their mother's womb that they have initially dignity and value because they are image bearers of god and the words that i can speak over the decisions they make and the life they live can dismantle devalue and create a sense of opposition that limits my ability to communicate the truth of the gospel to them. I want them to change so they look like me rather than have them be changed by the power of the gospel. The heart, the the mouth speaks what the heart hides. What James is really dealing with is that governing thing inside of us this is the seat of our emotions that begin to direct how we say and what we think and what we do we have spoken words that have wounded and we have been spoken to by words that have wounded us some of us have carried the pain of words spoken about us or spoken to us for decades i'd like to tell you a quick story of a lady that i knew in vermont I'll keep her name to myself, but her and her husband came in because they were having just terrible marriage problems. They had two kids, two girls that were uh, kind of on the cusp of becoming teenagers, but their their marriage was just absolutely 100% at odds. They couldn't get over so many of the things that had been spoken to one another. And as we walked through some counseling, one of the things that came out was that there was a situation that had happened that really wasn't about them. They were driving home one night, and they actually had three children, and they were in a horrific car accident. They had lost their youngest. The grief had taken over their lives, and the hurt and the weight of those moments just continued to fracture and they began to grow apart. They went to a pastor 20 years before they ever met me. And in the process, they said, You know, Pastor, can you help us understand? what happened and what God is doing. And the words they memorized and had written on their hearts uh, for decades. You lost your kid because of your sin. They were d- devastated, destroyed for two decades, their marriage fracturing, all because someone decided to make an assessment about the trauma that they were experiencing in the destructive grief that was taking over their lives and made it about something that they had done that had, if they hadn't done, then this wouldn't have happened. And and the word does not hold up in that. The, The Bible does not tell us those things. The Bible is clear that the punishment for sin has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. And this is not how God works, but their grief and their inability to wrestle with how God was working in a very traumatic and difficult situation made them turn their attention away from God and onto one another. Well, if there's sin then it's gotta be my spouses, they screwed up. They were driving too fast. It's their fault. Or it's her fault because she was yelling at me on the side of the, uh, in the passenger side and telling me what to, and, and it's this implosion. Of frustration that had existed inside of their heart that just began to dismantle their marriage. And it worked. Their marriage didn't make it. Just chronically, consistently deciding that they didn't wanna do this anymore. Why? Because words create worlds, they create a framework from which we understand how we live, they direct our life. So what James is getting at is there are a couple of options. Either the words we speak or the words that have been spoken over us that have wounded us and impaled us and assaulted us in so many ways either define us or John 1.1 defines us. The Word made flesh and dwelt among us. You have two options for words. The words around us, the words we speak to one another, can certainly create worlds, or the truth of God's Word, the incarnate Christ, the Word made flesh, can define us, and also define how we speak about the dignity of others. This matters, because words shape, words define, words devalue, words create worlds. Let me suggest to you as he moves on in the second illustration, he uses two a fire and a poisonous reptile. It's as though he begins to gain momentum, and here's what he says. He says a small spark can start ablaze. We all know that to be true. In a world that is absolutely on the cusp of outrage, one tweet, one post on Facebook, one perspective or suggestion about something that's happening in the world around us, one untethered opinion about what someone thinks that isn't rooted in God's word is like a dumpster fire. Like they're just lighting things up and what happens? The gospel gets put to the side, human value and human dignity get put to the side and then what takes place? It just becomes about winning the argument and making sure that people feel as foolish as they are for believing what they believe. We miss the reality of the fact that God can do and change even the songs that we sung. Salvation is available to all. That there is a gospel-centered perspective that begins with human dignity because God created all mankind. And that the best thing that could ever happen is they would encounter the life-transforming power of Jesus. And the words that I speak impact what people think about the truth of Jesus. 2002, one of the largest fires, or was the largest fire for 18 years in Colorado and Colorado Springs was called the Hayman fire. There's a lady who worked for the forestry service named Terry Barton. And it was found out after uh, hundreds and thousands of acres had been scorched by this fire that she was the culprit. And so she was asked, why did you start this fire? Now the suggestion was she started it because she wanted to be the hero that put it out. But that wasn't her story. Her story was that she was estranged from her husband and received a letter as they were in this enormous custody battle for their kid. And the words that were spoken to her by her estranged husband were not worth repeating, destructive, just absolutely abusive, if you will. And a friend just suggested Hey, you don't need those words spoken over you. Just burn the letter. Torched the letter (laughs) and over 200,000 acres of Colorado National Forest was burned because the spark got out from that letter and began to scorch the entire vicinity around and it took them forever to contain this fire. So James says about the tongue, one ill-placed word one frustrated argument, one thing that's spoken out of our own flesh can hurt and scorch the world around us. James says, these things should not be. Why does he say that? Is he just offering the token advice of a counselor, saying, stop it, just don't be stupid? No, he's saying that as the truth of Jesus and his redemptive power that has control and authority over our speech begins to direct us to be the place where life is communicated because of John 1, 1, the word made flesh because Jesus is inviting sin, sick, broken people to himself and that we want to be that which communicates life. I think what he's saying in this text is he uses the illustration of the fire Is that the very evil we see is ignited by the words we speak there is many of us myself included that have added to the fire more than we've put it out we've not necessarily been those that communicate the truth and the life-affirming joy that god has given us that that the joy of salvation and intimacy with christ we've we've added to the rhetoric of outrage and hatred and assaulting that which we feel should not be happening. And often our words are not governed by the truth of God's word. And what is the truth of God's word? All those who place their faith in Jesus Christ are united with him and adopted as sons and daughters. You're part of the family of God. That you function differently. You live as part of not of this world but of another world. And you are here as ambassadors of Jesus Christ that communicate the truth of who he is and the love and value that Jesus has for all of those around us. You step into the messy conversations. You move towards the hurting and broken. We move towards those who have spoken harsh words over us. I remember one of my biggest challenges in my own life of the words that were actually not spoken over me uh, had been a source of insecurity for the majority of my life. Time where I just, I always struggle with approval and performance was just a part of my, like if I prove myself, then I'll feel loved and valued. And so if I do enough things, then the people who matter to me most will say the things I desperately wanna hear. And it took decades for me to have one person in my life tell me that they were proud of me, decades. It actually only happened about four years ago. And what ended up happening? (laughs) It didn't actually provide the very thing that I was hoping that it would. But there was a challenge of wanting it so bad and doing something just to try and get it. And then realizing that the very things I need, I have in Christ. Can't expect a broken world and broken people to provide what a perfect Jesus can. And that's where I think he leads us in the next perspective that he gives us. I think his perspective in the next section this next illustration of a fountain and a fig tree is that the source, if you will, the the very headwaters of our heart is where our words come from. That the heart is the headwaters of our words. And so what he's saying in using this fountain and grapevine illustration is that it's all rooted in something and what we're rooted in begins to determine the very things that we say. And so where does our hearts flow from i know in my own life the more distant and disconnected i get from community and relationship with jesus the tending I, the more i tend to be harsh the more i tend to be frustrated the more my anger begins to mount the more that i begin to plant my life on the way that i want things to be and yet What James is calling us to is to re-root ourselves in the truth of God's word, that we're encountering broken people, and we as broken people recognize what it needs to be rescued, and so we continue to revisit, we continue to reclaim territory, we continue to communicate that Jesus is the only way, and that he needs to be the source and the hope of which the fountain of my life springs forth. And so here's what he says, after he tells us that the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison (laughs) he says in verse 9 we bless our lord the father and we curse people like there's a discrepancy and albeit even a hypocrisy that lives and breathes inside my heart and that's what he's identifying how can we is really the question on sunday mornings come and sing these beautiful worship songs about desiring for god to be revival and caring so deeply that god would just generate a sense of of salvation to the world around us and jump on Facebook and begin to tear down people who disagree with us. How? It doesn't make sense. It's, it's incongruous with what God is saying here. The goal is not to tear down a broken humanity that obviously has been discipled by the world and obviously they're going to have decisions and thoughts and perspectives that are completely contrary to the truth of God's word. What do they need? God, they need Jesus. So that's what he's saying is that as we sing these songs, as we erupt in passion for the Lord, and as we pray for revival, what are we praying? That people around all of our community, nation, and world would come face to face with Christ and know his love for them. That's what we desire. And yet he's saying that there are those that exist within the context of small churches uh, across all of these areas. He's saying, look, you, you praise on Sunday. There's something missing on Sunday afternoon where you get ticked off of your waitress because she's slow after you go to church and you eat food and you're like, man, why can't you just do your job better? I I mean, not that I've ever done that, but I've heard that it's been done before. It's just that reality of knowing what exists inside of our hearts. And so the heart is the headwaters of our words. Um, and so let me, let me give you a couple things. Our praises can mask the reality of the sickness inside. Here's what I mean. If church is just something where we check a box, it's likely that God is getting our attention and drawing us to himself. That there's a sense in which there's a level of surrender where we are here because it draws us to Jesus, not because we form some religious tradition and just check a box. That our praises can mask the sickness that lives inside. And so I think what James is drawing us to is, is we have to admit that there's a sickness there for all of us. We need the truth of God's word to have authority over our hearts. So worship is worship when it surrenders to the power of the gospel to ignite change. And we've said this a hundred times. We all need change. There's not one of us. This this goal of James chapter three is not to make us this place where we are making you feel guilty about how much you've hurt people with your words. The goal is to say, as we think about what James three is leading us towards, is that there's a... A growth and that the change that's occurring is shifting the rudder of our life to direct us to the life-giving Life-affirming truth of what Jesus tells us he is. I want to finish with this He finishes up in verses 13 through 18 and, and I know I'm running out of time, but I think this is critical Here's what he says Who is wise and understanding among you? And again, the question is do you think you know best where you need change? <laughs> the is no, right? We're gonna choose the easiest places of change. He's saying, well, who's wise among you? By his conduct, let him show his works in the meekness, humility of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Again, he's already said that the word, that the, the devil, hell itself, operates our tongue when we're not under the authority of God's word. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every type of vile practice. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I'm a CSI guy, I love those crime shows. You go in the lab and they figure out all of these details where they have fingerprints and evidence and DNA and. And they, they solve every crime in an hour, which is fantastic. Uh, maybe we should hire them to be a part of the, our police department, right? And then solve every crime within an hour. Uh, but, but they do all of these things. And what they're doing on these CSI shows is they're obtaining evidence of things that have already happened. I think that's where James is leading this last portion of this text. He's saying that evidence is left by the type of wisdom exercised. Wisdom is left by the type of wisdom exercised. What he's saying is, look, if you just look at the either life-giving things that are bearing fruit or that which is just an absolute scorched earth, uh, destructive, what's left in its wake kind of thing, then you can easily, quickly pinpoint where the wisdom is coming from. If there's discord, jealousy, or envy, those things aren't coming from God. They're coming from hell itself. But if there's peace and gentleness and a sense of life that's being left in the wake of the wisdom that is exercised, then it's evidence of what? You got really great, good Christians in your church. No, it's that you have people that are fixated and focused on the reality that Christ is the author of peace and the source of all joy. There's evidence that's left behind based on the wisdom that we are intaking. So let me ask, what wisdom are we intaking? Like what wisdom are you ingesting? Fox News, CNN, MSNBC? I don't know. What's the wisdom that you're internalizing? We have this conversation with our kids all the time. Garbage in, garbage out. It's true the things that we allow to feed our hearts and minds begin to be that which direct how we live. Based on the wisdom that you exercise, it depends, we understand the wisdom that we exercise based on what's left in its wake. There's evidence of godly wisdom and that wisdom is not envy and jealousy. I'll finish with this. Don Henley, anybody know Don Henley? singer of the eagles man finally like there's a couple people that are my age all your younger generation if you've never listened to the eagles you're living in sin uh, but uh, hey come on man don Henley's great but he wrote a song called dirty laundry and, and here's the chorus and this is what he says and i think it just captures the reality of how fixated we are with the things around us dirty little secrets he says dirty little lies We've got our dirty little fingers in everybody's pies. We love to cut down to size. We love dirty laundry. See, I think that that's where the flesh begins to churn is that often the reason why we struggle so much to enter into the mess of other people's lives is that if we're not careful, it can be quickly internalized that we feel like we've got it figured out and they don't. When in reality, the only thing we have figured out is that we are in deep meat of Jesus. And that our goal is not to be in everybody's pies with figuring out their dirty laundry so we feel like our dirty laundry is cleaner than theirs. It's to say very unashamedly, Jesus saves all of our dirty laundry for his glory and draws us to himself. That's why we want resolve. We want people to know Jesus. So if there's any sin or any struggle or any habit Anger, envy, bitterness, start with allowing the word to overshadow, to over control, to direct our words. Put the bit of God's word, John 1 1, in our mouth and allow it to shape how we see those things around us. And when there's a discrepancy about what God's word says and what we think or what we do, let me just give you this final suggestion. Trust God's word. Yours isn't awesome, neither is mine. We don't have this figured out, but God has given us his book and an intimacy with him so that we can understand the truth of who he's called us to be. Dirty little secrets, dirty little lies. We got our dirty little fingers in everybody's pies. We love to cut down to size, we love dirty little laundry. I'll suggest to you this morning that even though our flesh might love dirty little laundry, Jesus loves you, and that's the love that shapes his word spoken over us about who we are determines our identity. You are adopted as sons and daughters of God. You have been assaulted and hurt by words spoken over you for decades. I believe that Jesus wants to help move some freedom in that this morning, that you are not what broken people have said about you. You are what Christ has said about you, and that matters. Let's pray.